Hi, this is Debony Morgan, and you are with us on the Spirit of Now Zeitgeist's podcast, where we talk to spiritual leaders and influencers and people who are making great things happen in the world of interfaith and interspiritual spirituality. Um, and today we have with us Dr. Kimberly Hundley. And let me tell you a little bit about this amazing woman. She is a native of Los Angeles, California. Um, she's lived in Atlanta for 30 years. And in 2018, she graduated from the Interdenominational Theological Center with her doctorate or doctor of ministry degree in pastoral professionalism and spiritual care. Before receiving her DMEN, she completed seven units of clinical pastoral education, that's the CPE, and she has worked in the field of social services for 30 years, serving the disadvantaged, disenfranchised, and marginalized people in the capacity of counseling and community ministry. Dr. Hunley has dedicated her career to advocacy and creating space for others to heal from trauma. And just last weekend, she became a certified spiritual director through the Zeitgeist program. And so Kimberly, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you today to talk about your book, Time to Come Off the Porch, Journey of Healing from the Wounds of Kinship Care in the Black Family. So thank you so much for joining me, Kimberly, so that we can talk about this book. It's a wonderful read. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yes, absolutely. So first, to tell us about the book, please tell us a little bit about yourself and how your story became so integral to what you share with us in the book. Mm-hmm. My story, uh, born in Los Angeles uh, to two unwed parents. They were 17 years old at the time. So my mother raised me alongside her older sister, actually. So her older sister, which is my mama, uh, and her husband, who's my daddy, uh, he's now deceased, but they raised me from birth. And so raising me from birth, my mother, she would come by and visit. And as she got older and had three additional children, she didn't come as often or as frequently, and I wasn't as involved in her life as I was previously, which was okay, because she would come by and visit time to time. But as I grew older, I would watch other families, and I would see the moms and the dads and the siblings, and and my situation was a little different, and always felt a little different, though that I was loved, had um, two parents that loved me tremendously, but there was something always missing, and so I searched for that, looked for that. I would spend time with my friends in their homes at extended periods of time because I was looking for something, always searching for an answer, um, why my life was a little different, where my siblings lived across town with my mother and her then boyfriend. And I was with my my uncle and my aunt. And I was it was never a secret that I was not their biological child. Um, but... Um, my mother, it was difficult for her, I think, to be able to integrate me into her present life. And, uh, at the same time, um, be as much, as much as a parent to my younger siblings as she wanted to be. So I was left out. So I wouldn't want to come over on the weekends and spend time with my baby sister, my two brothers, but, often because of her situation. Um, her boyfriend was very jealous and didn't want 
me around because I was attached to another man from her past. Yeah. Um, so that was difficult for, for me to understand. As I got older, I kind of, you know, of course I had other friends and so I kind of uh, started doing my own thing, but growing up as a child, very difficult for me. So for me, um, I don't want other ch- children, other youth to go through what I went through, the struggling with the uh, issues of abandonment, uh, the attachment issues with me and my mom, the anger, the resentment, um, because there was a lot of unanswered questions and I thought she held the key. Um, so I struggled for a very long time with, with thinking that I wasn't enough and struggling with my, uh, my own enoughness. Um, I think it fueled my need to, um, pursue the field of psychology. Yeah. I got my, 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 uh, let me see. I received my bachelor's in psychology and uh, from Los Angeles in Mount St. Mary's College. Mm-hmm. I ended up getting my, my master's in counseling psychology from Clark Atlanta University. And I worked in the field of the nonprofit world, um, actually since I've started work. My first job was working on Skid Row with people that were detached from family and watching how their lives were out of control. So for me, that was like a wake up call that, wow, Though you were not with your biological mom or your biological dad, you didn't end up here. Right. So there was a saving grace. There was a buffer for me, I felt, that blocked that or prevented that. But I felt at that point in time in my life, I was 19 working on Skid Row, that I felt that it was my responsibility to help others not suffer what I went through or to get to a place where they don't know they're enough. So that is how this came along. And so every opportunity I had to write a paper or research document or my thesis or dissertation, it was always surrounded around the Black family, looking at uh, family systems, uh, looking at uh, Murray Bowen and family systems theory and how all that played a big part of my life and how I was raised and um, where I ended up and where I am now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that, of course, segues into, you know, so how did, how did the book take form, right? Mm-hmm. You mentioned academic uh, studies that were looking at this. So what's the story of how the book came to be? Wow. The book came to be, um, I believe it was my master's in divinity program. I was talking to my professor and um, we were given the responsibility of creating a genealogy, our family tree. And so did my family tree, we start looking at some patterns on my family tree, some of the issues, some of the similarities, some of the strongholds, generational curses. So I talked to my professor about that, showed her um, my family tree, presented to her some questions I had. And so some of the questions I asked, she said, "Um, there's a term I want you to research. I'm like, okay, what's that? She said, there's a, it's a term called kinship care. And I'm like, Okay, we write that down, kinship care. I said, she said, that is what is fueling the questions that you have. So need you to research that. Hold on to this, this family tree. This is going to be really important for you. Hold on to this. Research that topic and use this to, for your dissertation. And I wasn't in a, in a doctor program at the time, but she said, <laughs> no, this is going to be the fuel for that. I want you to hold on to it. Mm-hmm. And so Dr. Carolyn McQuarrie, and she was a professor at the Interdenominational Theological Center. 
Um, so I'm like, okay, I'll study this. So I began purchasing books on kinship care. I started reading articles on what it was and not, there was not a lot of conversation about the perspective of the child reared in kinship care. So that's kind of where my voice came from in this particular book. But I um, researched it, grabbed books, articles, all that stuff. And so I used that, the foundation of that to write my dissertation, which was probably six years later after I did the, um, the master's in divinity program. So I use the foundation of kinship care to develop my, my, my dissertation thesis, my dissertation. Um, so basically my topic is I was looking at how I was exploring the psychological issues that African-American women endure through the fam through the system of kinship care. So I interviewed African-American women. I did surveys, um, individual conversations, and we, it was so, I don't know, it was so, it was so healing for me because I found a circle of individuals who experienced what I experienced and we all had similar issues. We all had a strange relationships with one, one or more of our biological parents. We suffered through abandonment issues, not feeling enough. And also we had broken intimate relationships consistently. And neither one of us have been or are in a healthy relationship. Yeah, back to and initial attachment stuff, right? Attach, getting back to the attachment and codependency. And so it pushed me to move in that direction. So Dr. McQuarrie actually was my a master's in divinity professor. She ended up being a part of my team for my, my doctorate as well. So she was the second reader for my dissertation. She was the co-facilitator for my uh, cohort and so she was able to be there with me when I defended my dissertation. Mm. So it was powerful. It was full circle. It was oh, so healing. But that's how I got to my dissertation from my all the work I've done. And I even when I got my master's in Christian education from the ITC in 1998, I did um, the survey you see here is where that came from, from talking to my parents. I did an interview with them and all my siblings. I didn't include that in this book, but I include I included the conversations with all three of my parents and thought that was so relevant. And I did that conversation, oh my goodness, back in 97 and was able to incorporate it in this space. And it was yeah, so telling of the healing that I needed um, and listening it all, all through those voices speak over me. It released me. It released me. So that is one that is one aspect of the book that I really enjoyed was reading the actual interviews with your parents, uh, your biological parents, and 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 your mom, mama, and and daddy. Um, And the you know, we're coming from an academic dissertation. The th- another thing that I love about the book is it is imminently readable. It is, uh, I can hear your voice in it. And I'm sure that would be true even if I hadn't met you beforehand. <laughs> but um, it's it feels uh, very educational, but mm-hmm. more 
personal, both for getting to know you as a human, but also getting to know these systems yes. through the lens of somebody who experienced this and it has helped form them, right? Um, it was not dry. It was not removed. It was not academic. It was very compelling. Thank you. Thank you. So I, I want to ask, can, and, and, you know, I realized when we did your introduction that I was talking about your, your academic background, your scholarly background that qualifies you to write something like this, um, but forgot to mention, and, to, and, and I'm so happy that you brought it in, that uh, you are also coming, you're coming from a spiritual place. Yes. As a doctor of ministry and as a spiritual director, you're also coming from uh, a therapeutic place as a as a qualified uh, psychotherapeutic yes. professional. Um, but I, I want to ask you just for a moment: Can you speak into the spiritual side of the work? Obviously, this is an academic uh, thing that's coming from a very researched place. But what's the what is the spiritual aspect of this for you? I think for me it was grappling with the ideal of um, theodicy and why do bad things happen to good people? What's what did I do as a child? What did I do to warrant my mother giving me up for adoption? Mm. And uh, three days after I was born, what did I do? to cause that kind of disruption in my world. What did I mean? So I struggle with that. I look for answers for years. And so I always felt that I wasn't good enough. I wasn't enough. So for me, I built a relationship with God. I searched my life for um, meaning and for healing and so I pursued my uh, seminary uh, training. Um, I got my master's in counseling psychology, but I believe that I needed to incorporate my understanding of my relationship with my higher power to engage it with my my psychology, my, my field, the field of psychology, basically, in how I offered care. And I've been working with in counseling for over 30 years now. So I saw a need to engage the spirit self. Because I believe that when there's disharmony in mind, body, and spirit, and one portion of us is wounded or or um, not being fed, um, there's a decompensation. There's a breakdown. And so until we get all three of those things aligned, our mind, body, and spirit in alignment, there is this struggle, internal struggle. And so if my if my body is not well, my mind is not well, my spirit is, is, is thirsty, my spirit is hungry. So I think for me, it's better understanding how to feed my spirit, how to recognize when I am thirsty and where the well is and how I get there. Um, I think for me, I didn't have a point of reference for that. I was raised in the Baptist church all my life. Um, went to the Church of God in Christ for 20 years after that. And I'm like, okay, I'm still not finding that space. I felt more liberty to praise and worship in the Church of God in Christ, but I'm still not getting a space where I can actively be me and I can actively pursue the tenets I thought were helpful for me, lighting candles, my incense, um, 
my Tibetan singing bowl, um, my my uh, meditation, all those things were ways that I can experience um, the deity, experience the spirit. And I thought that was so important for me to incorporate that in my book, incorporate that in my life and in my counseling sessions. And, and then also offering spiritual direction, I'm able to walk with others on their journey and finding themselves and finding peace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is so beautiful. Thank you. And uh, as, as we were talking before we uh, started recording, for me, the, the spiritual aspect of the book was just the, the humanity of it. Mm-hmm. The, the, the imperfection of humans. Yeah. And yet the triumph of love, you know, <laughs> that uh that there were great hardships for you as a youngster, and then there were also great blessings, you know, that this your story is so whole and and I find that um those really drew me in, right? Oh, thank you. Um so so that being said, mm-hmm. what what was the hardest part of writing the book? The hardest part was being transparent and putting everything out there because I thought I needed to do that because if I didn't do that, then what was I offering the community? What was I offering the reader? What was I offering those who needed to be um, healed, who needed to find a way to find, to get themselves back to themselves by overcoming the obstacles of oppression and uh, unresolved trauma they may have endured through the system of kinship care, through this, they need, not even just kinship care, but brokenness, dysfunctional family systems um, that can lead to estrangement. I think it's the same kind of, it's like two sides of the same coin that we deal with that. So for me, I think the hardest part was transparency. The second thing is, wow, what is my family going to say when they read it? Yeah. So, and because I, I didn't dig deeply into them, but they thought I may have done that. So I've had all kinds of discussions and conversations mm-hmm. until they've read it. They all bought it and read it. And they're like, okay, I hear you. Yeah. It's about healing. And it's, and few of them said, you know, I'm glad you did it because we didn't realize what we were in, involved in. We right. didn't realize, oh my goodness. We didn't realize these, all these implications and the needs and we didn't realize how prevalent it was in the Afro-American, African-American community. Yeah. And so also it's going on now in the Latino population at a high rate because of the, I think the stance we took on immigration and then having our young Latino brothers and sisters incarcerated in makeshift, what do you want to call it? I'll call it a concentration space, but I, we have other words for it, but they now are trying to find family, be reunited with family, find their way back to themselves. And a lot of them are still placed in those spaces. So we have a lot of communities that are struggling with the attachment issues, um, struggling with finding voice, finding their way back to themselves and also connecting with family. And I love it because I can offer the term fictive kin to mm-hmm. individuals who are struggling with finding their way back to themselves and also connecting to a family system because not all the time can we connect 
or reconnect with biological family. But in fictive kin, these are individuals that were connected to by blood, not by blood, I'm sorry, not by blood, but by love and by heart. And those individuals can foster for us the most healthy relationships that we've ever seen if we give it a chance and if we permit ourselves to walk in those spaces. Right. Right. And, you know, we were talking about communities of color. We were talking about immigrant communities. And the idea of fictive kin is is very important in the queer community as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and as uh, our country continues to pass laws that are harmful to uh, young queer people, I think the idea of, of finding those people who are truly family because of yes. the bonds here, but they might not be bonds of blood is, is so important. Mm-hmm. I love that um, that part of your book as well. So, Dr. Kimberly, what would you like your Black readers to take away from, from your book? What, what would you be happy if they tucked away in their heart and carried with them? Wow. That we have history. We have, we do have, um, I think the issue, a lot of people don't think that African-Americans, we have our, we have culture or we have a shared culture or we have our own. I think some people have a notion that we don't have a connectedness or we don't have, what's the word I want to use? Um, legacy, but we do. And Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and kinship care has been something we practice even in before we got to this continent. Loving each other, having a family that you have uh, families that come together and love on one another. You may have more than one uh, wife present, but they all take care of the children and equally so. They all have different roles they play, but the role is to love the children and to ensure the children are cared for and loved. So yeah. we have that and, and we've always had that. And so I think for to bring it out in this book and talk about the fact that the kinship care is something that has been innate in, in the African-American community, even going back to enslavement, because when we were separated, even on plantations, somebody had to care for the child left behind. Right. So mom had to remind, baby, that's auntie so-and-so over there. That's Uncle Bob over there. So just in case I'm not here tomorrow, you have someone who's going to step in and you have someone you can lean on and depend on to to love and care for you. And I think that's something that we've always seen in the African-American black community, that we have those relationships. We always had neighbors that would step in and be our parents when our parents weren't home and would report things to our parents. You know what? <laughs> I saw her do this and that. So we would get it from them and we get it from our parents too. Yeah. So we've always had that network, that network of love, of of, of kinship in our in the black community. But I think that sometimes in African American uh, community, we wait for someone else to identify or to or to affirm us. And I think the takeaway is that we can affirm ourselves and we can love on ourselves and we can be family the way we say we want to be family. And it's okay. It's okay. It's not the norm, the westernized idea of what family looks like. It's okay because it's still family and it's still important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mm -hmm. who's to to say that the westernized way has ultimately had good results? (laughs) Um, So, what would you want your non-Black readers to take away from it? What is the uh, importance there for uh, people of other cultures or experiences? 
Wow. That families, no matter who we are, no culture, no whatever class, whatever ethnicity, we all go through struggles. We all have um, spaces where we have dysfunction that is that may be there. So it's a human um, struggle. I may have called it, um, you know, talk about the journey of healing the wounds to the kinship care from the Black family, but I had to write it from my lens. And so I, that's why I've had to title that. But it's any one of our lenses that we can have, tell the same exact story of dysfunction, of abandonment, of attachment issues, and restoration, and the need for healing and reconnection. So I think it's a it's a it's a, a human story. It's a human need. It's a human journey to find our way back to ourselves and to find inner peace and to and to realize you are enough and to be able to find your peace and to find happiness in your life and no longer continue to be attached to dysfunctional family systems that don't care for you and don't love on you, but you strive and run behind it, trying to be affirmed and you continue continually are beat down or mistreated or discarded. So it's to find your value and to stand on that. I love that. I love Mm -hmm. that. I wanted to close with, um, uh, paragraph that, that you actually closed before the uh, references, et cetera, at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just love what you had to say here. So I wanted to share share it with folks, first of all, for the idea itself, but also for an example of this is uh, Dr. Kimberly's wonderful writing. Healing is not a destination to reach. Instead, healing is a cycle of revelations where evidence of lessons and growing edges are revealed during moments of clarity. If no one else has made you their priority, don't you think it's time that you finally did? Mm-hmm. I promise once you decide you are valuable and seek your peace, there is nothing in this life that you cannot conquer. You are worth the work. Your wait is over. It is time to come off the porch. Your life is waiting. Amen. Yeah. So here's the here's what the book looks like, and you can get it anywhere where you get your books. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just really encourage anyone to um, take a look at it. It's a beautiful story with some good lessons to learn. Thank you. Anything else you would want to add? No, that is, that, that is, this was a wonderful conversation. I thank you for it. Mm-hmm. And I just pray that um, those who do get a chance to read it, that you find peace and healing. And there is a second part. I'm going to be doing a writing the second portion Ooh. of it this year, actually. And so there's a lot of questions. And so actually, because I did this, it opened the door to conversations within my family system. And I ended up doing the um, Ancestry.com. Um, a DNA. And I found out that my biological father is not who I thought it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I say that because, and it's so wild because. That's for a cliffhanger. Like. Cliffhanger. And this is my biological father on the wall oh. behind me. And my two sisters I found after doing my book. Um, his name is Eddie Metter. And my sister, Felicia, in the middle. And my sister, Africa, you can barely see her. She's on the end. Oh, my because God. Because of obedience. So if nothing, if, 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 I had not, if I had not written the book, 
I would not have had the conversations that led me to even go into genealogy. There was no reason to do DNA. I knew my biological father's name since I was a baby. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't have to search for that. I was just doing it because uh, I did a presentation on kinship care. And I talked about doing your family tree. And one of my students said, I did my, and I went on there and I found some siblings I never knew I had. Dr. Kim, you need to do it too. Mm-hmm. I'm like, mm, sure. And I did. And I was amazed that I, that happened, that I found my father. And he, yeah. So it's a whole conversation. So okay. book two. Book so two. We'll come back oh my gosh. <laughs> Well, thanks again for joining us today, Dr. Kim, and we will look forward to the next book and the next opportunity to hear some more from you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Ebony.